Well, hello. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the kind welcome earlier. Uh, greetings from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, I'm a huge fan of new church plants. I think it's a fantastic way uh, to reach our community. I'm a big fan of your pastor and his family, and it's great to get a chance after following from a distance, I'd be able to see it all up close. I just want to encourage you to keep going. Uh, God's doing a fantastic work here to have two services this morning. Uh, what I learned a long time ago, and I'm thankful for this, is that God does not need any of us, none of us. Like he is self-sufficient. He does not need this church. He does not need me. He does not need you, but he uses us for his glory and for his mission. And the vehicle that he has used to take his mission to the world is the local church. So while God doesn't need us, your community does. Your community needs him and you are the ones that he's using to make that known. Uh, so again, it's a real treat to be here. And what I wanna to talk to you today about is what I believe is the largest mission field in America. The largest mission field in America, and that is the mission field of cultural Christianity. What I call unsaved Christians. Now, I want to be clear that I do not believe that I'm the judge of who's a Christian and who's not, nor do I want to be, but the Bible is. The scriptures are, so we're going to see what God has to say about it and hopefully open our eyes to the fact that there's a mission trip happening right in front of us every single day that doesn't require a passport. And it's the unsaved Christians in our own community. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, that leads to death, to eternity apart from Christ. And he tells us this, there are many, this is sad. There are many, not a few, not a couple, many who go through it. How narrow is the gate, verse 14, and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. And that road that leads to life is through Christ. It's not through ourselves, it's through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, that we find forgiveness of our sins. What we've actually had this whole service about, so what I love about this church, is this whole service is geared around every Sunday, around the good news of the gospel, around the narrow road that is available to all of us if we will trust and believe and repent of our sins. But there's a problem here. And you have this kind of Bible verse, if you read your Bible regularly or sometimes whatever, that kind of stick out to you and go, wow, that's interesting. Oh, that's kind of fascinating. This is one of those texts for me because of what comes after it. You got to read the Bible in context. In our church, we always say context is king. You got to see what's around the scriptures, not just isolated verses. And this is one of those passages of scripture that make me go, huh, isn't that interesting? Because right after Jesus talks about the wide and the narrow roads, he doesn't go into some kind of rant about atheism. He doesn't lecture us about agnosticism. He doesn't call anybody out for pagan temple worship or idolatry. He doesn't tell them to shape up, get more moral, behave themselves, get it all together. Instead, here's what he says. Of all the examples to give about wide and narrow roads, here's what he says. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's not talking about atheists here. They call him Lord, Lord. There's some kind of belief happening here, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. What is God's will? That you believe the good news of the gospel. On that day, the day of judgment, many, there's that word again. And there's a wide road that leads to destruction. He said, many are on it. Here's that word again. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? 
This is our religious resume. Look at the things that we have done. Then in verse 23, I think some of the hardest words from Jesus in all the Bible. Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. It's like, wait a second, lawbreakers? We just told you how religious we are and how good of people we are. How are we the ones who are lawbreakers? Well, the problem is that they're missing the point altogether, that even good works that they're not done because of Jesus are actually works of iniquity. So he just told us was that the best way to explain who's on the wide road and narrow road is not atheists, even though they're on it, the wide road. It's not those of the other world religions, even though they're, they're on it. It's not those who maybe just are just unrepentant sinners and unregenerate sinners, even though they're on it. That it's people who think they're on the right road, but are actually on the wrong road. And that is all around us in my community and in yours. Because let's be honest, most of you, I'm just going to take liberty and guess, don't know a lot of atheists. Might know a couple, but not a lot. Most of us in this room don't know a lot of people from other world religions. I'm sure they're really nice, but you don't know a ton. You don't know a ton of Hindus. You don't know a ton of Buddhists. You might, you might know a few, but not very many. You don't know very many Muslims. You may, maybe a couple, maybe some of you work jobs and maybe other places that maybe have more of a larger population of that, maybe, but not a, not a ton. But a lot of you know people who think they're Christians and they're not. And again, not my call, not your call, but it's the scripture's call. And Jesus said, there's many of those people who will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Aren't we good with you? And I'll tell them, actually, no, you're not. That's not condemnation. That's not judgment. I want to reach those people for Christ. I'm going to know Jesus. I want to love God and love my neighbor. I have to make sure that one, we speak the truth. And also we know our mission field. Like, I'm just going to guess that some of, some of y'all are going on a mission trip overseas, maybe during spring break or during the summer. I'm just going to guess that you'd probably try to find out some information about where you were going. You wouldn't just show up blind, right? You'd monitor the language, what's offensive and what's not, a little bit about the food, you know, gestures that you shouldn't make that mean something bad there, we don't mean something bad here, right? You'd want to know all about that culture where you were going. How about here? Besides just knowing the roads and knowing the back ways, knowing the good restaurants, do you know the religious belief system of your community? Well, I believe there's some barriers to us reaching our friends for Christ. And a lot of our evangelism strategies you see in the church and evangelism techniques, they're geared around strangers who are skeptics. Now, I'm thankful for that. We need evangelism strategies around strangers who are skeptics. But for most of us, that's not our context. It's people we know, who we're friends with, who in our family that maybe know Christianity, but they don't know Christ. We need to make sure that we're clear on that. So I want to make sure that we can understand the barriers. Because we understand the barriers to reaching our cultural Christian, unsaved Christian friends it will help us hopefully have an opportunity to engage them and to reach them more. Or maybe you yourself will find out this is the camp that you find yourself sitting in. And that first barrier is belief. The first barrier is belief. When I say cultural Christian, I mean people that their answer for being a Christian is not grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they're Christians basically in name only, nominal Christianity. And the first barrier to reaching that person is belief. That might sound weird. It's like, wait, belief is a good thing, right? Well, yes. And belief is actually a gift from God. It's by God's grace we can even believe, the Bible tells us. So how is belief a barrier to reaching somebody for Jesus who already claims to be a Christian? Well, J. 
James chapter two, James wrote this in verse 19. You believe that God is one? Like you believe in God? He said, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. And he's being snarky here. He's like, oh, you believe in God? Like basically saying, you want a cookie? Like, like congratulations, even the devil believes in God. If anyone's a monotheist, as in they believe in one God, it's the devil. If anyone has a good theology and knows the right things, it's the devil. If anyone knows that Jesus died on the cross, believe me, it's the devil. If anybody knows the reason why you get dressed up in pastels and go have ham at Nana's in the spring on a day called Easter, it's the devil. Sadly, the devil oftentimes has a more accurate belief in God than many unsaved Christians. Because I'm talking about atheists here. We're talking about what I just call a generic theism or a vague theism. In other words, what I'm saying is the God of cultural Christianity is not the God we find in the Bible. So that's kind of bold of you to say. It might even sound arrogant. It's not what I mean. I just want to explain to you why, why I think that. Because the God of generic or vague theism is kind of a big guy upstairs. He's an imaginary friend. He's a divine Santa. Maybe he's a moral compass. Maybe he's maybe a good feeling in a time of, of stress or anxiety, something along those lines. We have to make sure that we understand the God of the Bible, like the actual Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not vague. It's not generic. He's actually made himself known. He's actually spoken. Carl Henry said, the most important question we can ask is not, is there a God? It's not atheism versus theism. There is no God. There is a God. It's if there is a God, has he spoken? So if he hasn't spoken, we're not accountable to very much, and who cares? You just do you, right? But if he has spoken, then I need to make sure that I'm paying careful attention to what it is he has to say. The book of Hebrews begins like this. Long ago, God spoke. He has spoken to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways, our Bibles. In these last days, which means then to now, he has spoken to us by his son. The God's appointed him to be heir of all things, and make the universe through him. What does this mean? The way we understand God now is through Jesus Christ. And to not submit to the lordship of Christ is not to believe in the God of the Bible, even though someone doesn't consider themselves to be an atheist. Here's what makes it so confusing. There's no category for cultural Christian. It doesn't exist. If you were filling out a survey or some kind of application, and they asked you the normal questions, what's your name, birthday, gender, you know, marital status, height, weight, routine. You're just going down, doing it all. And they would ask you to check your religion. So I wouldn't hesitate at all. It's not weird. Well, I'm not no religion, so I'm not going to check that box. I'm not that. I know for a fact I'm not Jewish. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not Hindu. There's not a box that says, thinks you're a Christian, but you're actually not. I wish there was. That doesn't exist. The box says, Christian. So because you're not a atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, what do you check? Christian, not based on what you believe about Jesus, but maybe because, basically because you're not the other things that are listed. There's so much confusion. When I was leaving uh, my seminary to go back to Tallahassee to go start a church and go into ministry full-time in my city, there, uh, my, where I'm from is, you know, maybe my parents live as the crow flies where I grew up, about 10 miles from the Georgia line. So like very Southern. I and mean, people like drink sweet tea, wear Columbia shirts, croquis, back their trucks into parking spots, you know, all those kind of things. You know, there's very Southern. So I kind of felt some guilt about going back to the Bible Belt because why do we need another church in Beaufort, South Carolina? There's churches everywhere. 
And I felt that way in Tallahassee. Why do we need a, I kind of felt guilty about it. My next door neighbor to make matters worse for me was moving his family to Northern California to be part of a church planting team. Very secular, right? They're very non-religious. Not many Christians there if you look at the data. So here's my next door neighbor, went to the same seminary, same education, same beliefs, is going to Northern California, taking his family out there to plant a church. And I'm going to my hometown where we have Chick-fil-A's every two miles. And I felt what you call missional insecurity. Missional insecurity is when, maybe like when you're in high school and all your friends for spring break are going to an orphanage in Haiti and you're going to Panama City. You know, you're like, I'm praying for you if I remember, good luck. You know, that's like, you just kind of feel, you kind of feel a little weird, a little bad about it. And when you're insecure, you just kind of like say some things, try to make yourself feel better, prop yourself up, those kind of things. Uh, so I just said some just kind of spiritual jibber jabber to him, trying to feel better about myself. And I was like, man, I just admire you, man. You're just like laying it on the line, moving your family out there. Like, wow, man. And he goes, oh, stop it. I said, what? He said, well, you're going in Tallahassee is more, more difficult than where I'm going. I was like, what? Like, child, please. Like, what, what, what are you talking about? And I think everywhere is hard because the enemy's everywhere. But he said, where I'm going in Northern California, there's no confusion over who's a Christian and who's not. Either you follow Jesus or you don't. Where you're going, everybody's fine. It's like they have to get lost in order to get saved. And that brings us to our next one, our next barrier, which is moralism, or just morals in general, morals, values, ethics. Morals can be one of the biggest barriers to reaching somebody. Again, morals are a good thing. Values are a good thing. Oftentimes they're from God himself. They're from his word, but it's really hard to reach someone who thinks they're a good person on their own and isn't an atheist. And here's what makes it even more tricky. They're right. They are wonderful people. They are really great folks by the standards of their community. They're really good people by American definitions, what it means to be good. I mean, I hope people in this room can find someone a little worse than you. Don't elbow the person next to you. That was, that was a, little, a little too obvious, okay? I saw that. No, but, 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 but find somebody a little worse than you, right? And if you can or you don't want to think about that, as long as your family kind of keeps up uh, with what is considered moral and, you know, in this part of the country in 2020, then you feel good about yourself and that we're really good people. The issue is we're making the wrong comparison. But to help people, what I, do, what I call change the comparison game, here's a story from the book of Luke that Jesus told. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee who's very religious, very devout, very moral, and the other, a tax collector, who in this culture was viewed as kind of the sinners of the sin because they were preying on poor people. They were, had sold out their own people. They were overcharging. It's kind of a reverse Robin Hood that was taking place there. So they were just viewed as very bad people in this culture. The Pharisee was standing and praying. So he's not an atheist, believes in God, prays. He's praying this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. So abroad, I, you know, as long as I'm, I'm measuring up to the culture around me. And then he gives his Matthew 7, 21 through 23 answer. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Perform miracles in your name? He says, those other people are greedy. They're adulterers. They're even like this tax collector. So I want to compare myself broadly, but I'm also going to get real specific. This guy here is worse than me. This particular example, here's my Matthew 7 resume. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But then we have a little bit of a plot twist. It says, but. And that word, but, when it exists in the Bible often is really important. We see things like in John 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come. They may have life 
and have it more abundantly. We see things like that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians chapter 2, but God has made us alive in Christ. That word but is very important in the scriptures often because it gives us a big turn of events. It says, but the tax collector, here's somebody different, standing far off, not even raised his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified. It's a legal declaration. I mean, declared not guilty, forgiven of their sins, made right. Rather than, he draws a line in the sand rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus himself said, not this one, but that one. This one is justified, not the other. Why? Because the Pharisee is saying, hey, look at me, and I'm not as bad as him. The tax collector is going, everything God, the Pharisee just said about me is 100% true. It's all true. All I can do now, I can't measure up to you, I'm a sinner. All I can do is plead for your mercy and plead for your forgiveness. And here's what's amazing. God answered his prayer. God answered his prayer and he still does it for us today in Christ. And we appeal to him and his mercy, not our own works, or our own goodness. For it's been by grace we've been saved through faith, not by works, so that nobody can boast. I believe one of the most, I would say, basic common beliefs in America today, if I just had to do some kind of broad stroke, I would say it to this, good people go to heaven. Don't know what heaven is, why you go there, who's in charge, none of that matters, just good people go there. I mean, go to any funeral of anyone, especially a cultural Christian, and you're going to hear things like, we're just so, so thankful that grandpa and grandma are reunited again. He missed her so much. You're going to hear things like, we're just so glad that Uncle Johnny is playing that big 18 holes in the sky right now with Moses, right? I mean, those kind of things. But we know right now that Uncle Bill is out fishing with Jonah in the big bass lake in the sky. Hope he doesn't get swallowed. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, they, they say those kind of things. And their reason for believing that is just that Uncle Jim is really great. That grandma's just awesome. A grandpa's just an awesome person. And here's what we're doing when we say that. We're doing Galatians 2.21 without even meaning to. Paul wrote this, I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Doesn't that sound blasphemous to yell out loud that Jesus died for nothing? Doesn't that sound sacrilegious? Anytime we in our minds have decided that good people go to heaven, we're holding a big, huge sign up in the air that says Jesus died for nothing. That Christmas was the biggest waste of time ever. That Easter's irrelevant and that Jesus died for nothing. I did a funeral uh, a few, uh, about a year ago, really sad, 19-year-old boy, so you can imagine, it's tragic, it was terrible in terms of the events. It's really, really sad. Thankfully, he was a Christian, and his family were also believers. And they go to a church where I pastor, and uh, they sat me down and said, we want you to kind of be the last person, like the closer, like Mariano Rivera out of the pen, you know, kind of thing. Like, you're, you're the closer, you're going last. That's a baseball reference, sorry. Uh, you're, going, you're going last, and we want you to make sure you're clear on the gospel. I said, oh, yeah, I, I promise I'll do that. It was really, really adamant about it. They want the gospel to be shared. Uh, so they had different family and friends shared before me, and they all were just great. I mean, they did such a great job. They were talking about just how wonderful their brother was, how he was a great friend, lit up the room. I mean, just everything you could imagine. Just everything nice you should say at a funeral about somebody. And uh, so it was my turn to come up at the very end. And his family sitting in the front row, and I could see his dad looking at me like, bro, don't waste this moment. I was like, oh boy, here we go. So I wanted to pay tribute to their son, but also point people to Christ, right? We don't, we don't want to waste this opportunity, uh, as tragic as it is. So I went up there and I said, one, I want to thank everyone for what they've shared about Heath. That's his name's Heath, about Heath's life, about who he was as a person. 
I said, I also want to make sure that you know that every single thing that was said about him is 100% true. 100% true. But none of those reasons are why he is in heaven today. He's in heaven today because Jesus Christ died for his sins and rose from the grave. And he's believed that by faith and repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. That's why he's in heaven today. Doesn't negate any of the other stuff. It's just if righteousness comes through being awesome and being great and being someone who lights up the room and shirt off your back, then Jesus died for nothing. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. It's something we can never do for ourselves because of our own personal sin. Our holy God will not let sin go unpunished or he wouldn't be much of a God at all. But our holy God is also a merciful God to punish Jesus in our place. That is the good news of the gospel. The third one is heritage. Heritage. Another wonderful thing. Thank God for godly heritage. Thank God for Christian parents and Christian grandparents. Can faith be passed down? Absolutely. But it can't be inherited. Faith can be passed down, but it can't be inherited. And usually how heritage plays out is in rites of passage. I have friends who, aren't, who like barely believe in God on their best day. And the moment the baby's born, they run down and get the baby christened. I'm like, why? Why do you care about that? You don't go there. Like, you, you don't even, I, mean, I don't say this out loud like that to him. I say it a little nicer. But it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like what's happening here? It's like, well, that's what we do. And they'll never go back again until it's time to get confirmed or first communion or whatever it might be. They won't go back again. The moment that baby's born, spur it. Oh, I had no idea what the church. Well, we don't, but you know. It really is, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but sometimes you just got to call something what it is and go, it's kind of bizarre. Just kind of this rite of passage kind of heritage sort of thing. It's kind of, and, and Protestants aren't much different. It's not, it's not a knock on Catholics. Protestants aren't much different. You know, in certain you know, segments where, especially people that have grown up at more mainline Protestant, uh, well, there are some remnant good ones, thankfully, but not very many. There's kind of non-gospel preaching churches that just sort of come together and talk about morals and let's love people better and, you know, one, two, three, let's go have a good day or, you know, whatever it might be. It's a lot of people, they, they claim a church, but they only go like when it's Mother's Day and it means a lot to Nana. So there's a guilt trip or Easter or not that going to church makes you a Christian, but there's just no context for Christ. They claim to be Christian and participate in some Christian events because it's a family thing to do. Just sort of heritage. And it really can be a big barrier to reaching somebody because they're from a Christian family. And we prayed before dinner growing up, so we're Christians. And it reminds me of a story that, of my grandfather, and my grandfather was like one of my heroes, World War II vet. I mean, tough Italian guy, you know, probably knew 15 ways to kill you and had 10 mafia ties. I'm not even sure, uh, but just, just awesome guy in terms, of just the, just terms of just being an awesome grandfather. And my grandfather, I think he went to mass when he was younger, but like I never, ever remember him going to mass my entire life. Like never, ever. Not talking about it, never took me nights to the night with him as a kid. Like none of those kind of things. And we're one day watching a football game. It was Notre Dame, believe it or not. And uh, we're sitting there talking. I'm already an adult by now, already pastoring the church, all those kind of things. He died about 11 years ago at 89 years old. Lived a great life. And uh, we're just sitting there talking. And he's like, hey, Dino. That's what he always called me. Hey, Dino, can I ask you a question? I'm like, yeah, of course. He goes, why aren't you Catholic? I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> and and I, I, said, I said, what do you mean? I knew what he meant, but I was like, I'm not gonna, I don't, I'm don't want to get in an argument with my eight-nine-year-old grandfather or give him some two-hour you know, presentation on the Reformation. You know, so, so, uh, so, I, so I, I said, Pops, what do you mean? And he said, um, he goes, well, your dad's Catholic. I was like, Papa, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. He's a deacon in our church. I hope he's not. <laughs> That'd be news to us, you know? I'm like, he's in the other room. You can go ask him. He's like, no, he's Catholic. I'm like, Pops, he's, he's, he's not. 
he goes, well, okay, well, your Uncle Tim, his older son, he's Catholic. My papa, he's an atheist. He's like proud of it. He's like a Darwin sticker on his car. I mean, he's like, I mean, he's like loud and proud, right? He's, he's a cool guy, but he's hostile towards Christianity. Hostile. No, he's not. He's Catholic. Okay. Trying to be respectful of my grandfather here. Okay. Well, your Uncle Ted, his younger son, he's Catholic. I'm like, Papa, he's nothing. Ask him. He's, he's nothing. Absolutely nothing. No, he's not. He's Catholic. And it was just frustrating. It just really was going in circles like that. And we wound up having a good little talk eventually, but I learned something that day. For my grandfather, being Catholic was more important than believing Catholic. And for a lot of people who claim to be Christians today, being Christian is more important than believing Christian. They're simply Christians by culture, not by conviction about who Jesus is and what he's done. Does anyone come to mind in your, as I've been talking about this? I'm just curious, hands up. Anybody, anyone come to mind, your family or friends or all these things you're talking about? Yeah, it's all over. It's all around us. See what's happened. If anyone could claim heritage, it'd be James, who in his book said, if anyone, you believe in God, good, even the demons believe that and they shudder. Jesus was the brother, or James was the brother of Jesus. If anybody could claim heritage, it'd be him. Imagine being Jesus' brother. I know, mom, he always makes his bed, right? Like, uh, like James is definitely in counseling about his childhood, right? I mean, like being Jesus' brother, if anyone could have claimed heritage, it was him, but James went from even mocking Jesus as his brothers mocked him and didn't believe him to giving his life as a martyr because he saw his brother die and rise again. Because he wasn't, he wasn't a Christian by heritage, he was a Christian by conviction. Why else would you follow your brother to your death? Seriously? <laughs> Who would do that? Somebody who knows that he's different than anyone else. What I'm concerned about is that we see a generation of Christians that are passing away or almost gone who believe the gospel. A lot of that kind of greatest generation and older who were great church members who, gave, who believed the gospel, but their children, their adult children are now maybe boomer age, kind of assume the gospel. Went to church a little bit when they could, but it wasn't to top party in their life, just following Jesus in general. Now their adult children who are 30, who are 40, they're just kind of like indifferent towards it. Just kind of whatever. And now their children who are being raised right now are going to be gone altogether. Heritage is, is, is nice, but it's not reliable and it doesn't save. When I was uh, a kid, I was born in Fort Lauderdale. And I, um, Fort Lauderdale, South Florida, culturally, is much more like the northeastern part of the United States than the south, even though it's geographically as south as you possibly can get. Most people there are from New York, New Jersey, Philly. They're just, it's much more Northern in culture, much more. I mean, no one's drinking sweet tea. I mean, it's, it's totally, totally Northern culture. Well, when we moved to Tallahassee, it's very Southern culture where I'm from. And I made a new friend when I was, I was nine years old, moved to Tallahassee, fourth grade, I made a new friend. And he invited me over to his house to play. So my parents checked it out, make sure it was okay. And I started going to his house to play pretty regularly. Well, after being there for a little bit, the mom sat me down and told me she wasn't gonna let me play with her son anymore because I was rude. Well, I started crying. You know, I'm nine years old. I'm like, why? I found a friend and I'm, I'm not rude. I'm a nice kid. You know, like, and I started crying. And she, I said, so, she, so I went home afterwards and cried to my mom and was like, Miss Morris said I can't come over anymore because I'm rude. She's like, what did you do? You know, like, what did you say? My parents aren't the parents that are like, oh, our kids are perfect. They're like, tell us, tell us, we know, you know, kind of thing. So my mom, like any mom probably would have done, she called her. She's like, what happened today? What, what did Dean do that, that was so rude? And I'm like, no, I promise I said, please. I didn't interrupt anybody and all that kind of stuff. And so my mom called her and to come to find out, 
I didn't say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, and no, sir. Because where I'm from, you don't say that. It's not considered polite. It's actually considered rude because somebody thinks you're calling them old. Like they think you just declared them going to Denny's at 5 p.m. for dinner before you fly to Branson for vacation. And that's just what, that's, that's what they think. It really is. And it's hard to fathom that living in South Carolina for a lot of you. That really is, it's just not even a context for saying yes, ma'am. And you just don't do it. You're never raised to do that. Well, guess what happened? I started saying yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. And no, ma'am, and no, sir. Anytime I left my house. This sounds like blasphemy to some of y'all. So just kind of take off your Southern hat for a minute. And then just realize it's just a cultural thing. I've never said yes, ma'am, to my mom in my life because it never was considered polite. I had to say things like, yes, please, no, thank you. Tone mattered, respect mattered, how I talked to her. But I never said ma'am to my mom in my life. Everybody else's mom, you better believe I said yes, ma'am to them. Not because I was less respectful to my mom, but because where I lived outside of my house, that's just what you did. Now, my convictions did not change that that was what was considered polite. It's just cultural. The only reason I said yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, was because that's where I live is what you're supposed to do. So I tell my kids now, make sure you say those things because that's what's considered polite where we live. My convictions did not change. It's just do what you're supposed to do where I live. Guys, for a lot of people who plan to be Christians, being a Christian has nothing to do with conviction. It just is what we do here. It's just part of the culture. It's just part of the rules. It's just part of the makeup. And we have a generation of people who are on the wrong road and think they're on the right road. The last one's ignorance. People just don't know. They just have no idea. That's my story. I was raised going to church every single Sunday. Unless we were sick or out of town, we'd say a prayer before dinner. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I thought we were thanking God for lettuce for a while. I was like, lettuce is terrible. Why are we thanking him for that? You know, by, by, his, by his hands, we all are fed. Thank you, God, for our daily bread. Said it every single night for, for dinner. Every single night. Went to bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. Every night. I went, and I, I, I liked church fine. People were nice. I, I enjoyed it. Went to a little mainline Protestant church every Sunday. I go to a Fellowship of Christian Athletes retreat when I'm 13 years old. I didn't have the lingo. I didn't really know what this word meant at the time, but I heard the gospel for the first time in my life. Yeah, someone who went to church every single Sunday, prayed, God is great, God is great, God is great, God is good, now lay me down to sleep, had never heard the gospel before. I was told to be a good person. I could tell you some Bible stories about like Noah and David and Goliath and those kind of things. I never had anyone tell me that I was a sinner in need of a savior and his name was Jesus. I knew Jesus died on the cross, but it was actually personally for me. It wasn't really part of the conversation. So the pastor gave an invitation. And he read from Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. And he asked those who want to come forward and become Christians to come forward. I'm not going forward. I've never seen an invitation before. I don't know what that meant. An invitation, if you're kind of new to church today, uh, in a lot of settings, is that the pastor will preach a message and call people forward to make a decision to trust in Christ. I've never seen that before. I thought it was the weirdest thing in the world. Uh, so I, I didn't go forward because I'm already a Christian. Why? Because I'm not an atheist. I'm not Jewish. We pray before dinner and we're good people. We're the Ansara family. We're Christians. I'm belief, morals, heritage. We're Christians. Then he gave another invitation. He goes, there's some of you who are the exact person Jesus is talking about. And you think you're Christians and you're not. And your reason for being a Christian has nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, Jesus couldn't even have died and rose again and it wouldn't change your faith at all because it doesn't matter to it. He gave a second invitation. All these kids came forward during the first invitation to become Christians. Only one kid went forward during the second one. And it was me. And I actually saw that pastor for the first time since I was 13 about a year ago which is really neat. Had never seen him again. Didn't know who I was, nothing. It was really cool. One of them was like, uh, just so you know, <laughs> I'm in going to heaven because God used you. <laughs> you know? And so um, 
And I go forward and there's like football coaches who are kind of receiving students. And I go forward and I grab one of the coaches there and I said, hey, I'm not exactly sure what all, he, it's, what all I need to do or what's going on, but what he just described is me. And we were in a gym, there's bleachers. And he walked me over to the wall and we kind of sat down against the wall. And he just walked me through with the Bible, what it meant to actually be a Christian and what it actually meant to trust in Christ and how my morals weren't going to save me and how my generic beliefs weren't going to save me and how my family wasn't going to save me. They needed to be saved too. And I learned that day that saved is not just some kind of Southern revivalist language. It's Jesus language. It's in the Bible that we need to be saved from our sins. We need to be born again. And I gave my life to Christ that day. And I didn't know how to channel it until I was 13 years old, (laughs) immature, overzealous. And I joked on the only, but it's actually true. I joked on the only person in the history of Christian conversion to come to Christ and be mad about it. And don't get me wrong, I had joy, but walking down the aisle as a 13-year-old, in my mind, I'm going, how have I been in church my entire life and no one has ever told me this before? So I get home, again, 13 and mature, and I bust open the door. My dad's like, how was the retreat? And I'm like, our church stinks. You know, and he's like, he's like, whoa, whoa, what is going on? And honestly, my parents thought I joined a cult. Because cultural Christians believe the only difference between themselves and actual Christians is that those people who really are Christians are just more into it. They're just like really religious. They're the person that gets asked to pray at Thanksgiving because you say good prayers. So that's how they view it. That's how they view it. Like we're Christians too, but they're like really religious. In their minds, that's the only difference. And I I would say there's actually a really big difference between cultural Christians and those who are actually Christians and it's the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the gospel. It's not our works. We can't boast. And we're not saying be more like me. We're saying, please trust in Christ for your salvation, Christ for your forgiveness, and realize that if you're going to stand before God on your own merit, good luck with that. Some of y'all have already sinned this morning on your way to church, right? A sinful thought, something, good luck standing before God on your, you can't go in a day. Or you're going to stand before God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the great news is if you're a Christian and you've prayed that prayer before, and in whatever way you worded it, if it was about Jesus and your forgiveness, God's answered your prayer and you're his. And you're his and you belong to him. But far too often, especially in the Baptist circles that I'm in, we are more concerned with convincing someone they are a Christian than making sure they actually are Christians. I'm telling you. And we gotta be careful. And I believe in assurance with all my heart and I believe in perseverance with the saints. Once you're a believer, you're always a believer. Let's make sure they're actually believers, not folks that just signed up for the rite of passage that everyone else does in their family, or they just think they're good people, or they aren't atheists. And guys, I'm convinced that people can't know unless they are told. Romans chapter 10. We'd have more courage out of love for God, most importantly, and actual love for our neighbor, right? The catechism today. Love for God and love for our neighbor to actually tell people and open our mouths and say, there's a wide road but you don't have to be on it. That's the thing. It's not hellfire and brimstone because God has given us the remedy. He's given us the good news. He didn't leave us with bad news. There is bad news, but the good news is so much better. Like there's more grace in God and there is more sin in you. You know how much sin is in you and me? Woo! Lots. We are great sinners, but we have a great savior. And cultural Christians don't have a category for sinner because in their mind, they just make mistakes sometimes. You know, they're sincere. God knows my heart, those kind of things. That's not saving faith. It's not saving faith. So again, I am, I just wanna, I'm not trying to be a broken record, but I do not believe that I'm, a, that I'm the judge of who's a Christian, who's not, nor do I want to be. You're not either. The Bible is. The Bible makes it clear that if, that's really the whole theme line of the, of the, of the scriptures, the whole storyline, 
if your reason for being a Christian is something besides the work of Christ on your behalf, you might not be. And that's reality. So we don't have to become gurus on how to like defend our faith. Even I think it's really important. The Bible calls us to do that. Some of us need to be gurus on just knowing our friends and opening our mouths because most of us don't know a ton of, a ton of atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Buddhists, what most of us don't know a lot of them. I wish we'd know more, but a lot of us don't have a context to know a lot of those folks, but we know a lot of people even related to them, maybe married to them, parenting them, sibling to them, working with them, boss, employee, whatever it might be, little league coach, teammate, classmate, that their answer for being a Christian is nothing the Bible would actually say makes you a Christian. It's a modern day example of Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I believe God wants to continue to use this church to reach that mission field in this community. Let's go. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and we're thankful for warnings and for hope and for truth. And I thank you that Jesus died for my sins, that he paid a debt that I deserved and accomplished something I can never accomplish, which was reconciliation to my, to my God. So I ask that we will be people who are mindful of the gospel, that we will see it as the greatest story ever told and that it will lead us to want to live our lives for your glory, that we'll repent of our sins. We won't make excuses. We won't make disclaimers. We won't do yeah, buts. Uh, but we'll be people that not rearrange your word, add or take away from it, but follow your word because we know how much you love us. We believe that you're actually the one you claim to be. So thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this church. I ask you to use this church and other gospel preaching churches in this community to reach this town that desperately needs the good news of Christ. We're thankful for all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all for having me. Amen. Amen.